Malcolm Honeline is in Israel, which always makes our conversations even more special as we try to connect with the Holy Land. He is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honeline, shalom, and welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. Good. Welcome back to you. And it's, Thank you. Uh, it's good to be with you. Appreciate that very much. Mayor did a great job, though. Yeah, he certainly did. I heard the spot, and I'm very thankful to him. And um, it's great to speak to you always, but especially when you're in the Holy Land, as I always describe. Speaking of the Holy Land, and again, we'll revisit some of last week's topics, but there's so much new this week uh, with the situation that's going on, which we'll get to as well. But I, I, you know, we have been hearing rumors since the start of this war about the possibility of Israel serving as some type of intermediary. We actually heard a rumor about some type of summit, and I know this goes back a few days, and believe me, in this war, a day or two is a lifetime. Um, We even heard a rumor about the possibility of a summit taking place between the two sides in Israel itself. What could you tell us about Israel's possible further involvement in all of this? So uh, I think it's quite remarkable, and most Jews, I think, take a lot of pride in the fact that, you know, that Israel was able to play a role that few countries in the world could play. The United States couldn't, the uh, others couldn't, in being an intermediary between the two sides, not to, to it, I think, was to increase communication and to see if there was a nexus on which some sort of a solution could be arrived at, and that that role has continued. Bennett, Prime Minister Bennett, has continued to be in touch with the two sides. And I heard, I, I we had a call with uh, President Zelensky, and uh, he praised the role that the Israel played. Uh, and I think the, uh, you know, there have been some harsh comments and commentary, which I hope we can talk about. And, and I actually went to the airport uh, the night I arrived, the night before last, this is a very brief visit, and as you know, I was here up to last week. So obviously, it's for important reasons, and especially for the Ukraine issue. But the the uh, I was at the airport to see a group of uh, of Ukrainian Jews arrive, <clears throat> and it was a very emotional, moving thing. So Israel is really playing a critical role in providing humanitarian aid and providing providing assistance. I do not think that there will be a summit of that kind right now. I think the the two parties are talking directly, which is what Israel and others wanted to achieve. It did not succeed in terms of coming to a conclusion, but at least they agreed uh, yesterday in Istanbul to have further discussions. Uh, I think that that is uh, really where the diplomatic process stands right now. Russia seems to be very adamant and refusing uh, some of the approaches that have been made, or everybody recognizes that Putin needs a ladder to climb down to get in, in this situation. We don't know how determined he is. Supposedly, the 30-mile convoy of cars is moving, which means that that may reflect uh, a policy position on his part that they're going to start attacking. They've, they're certainly positioning themselves in what looks like attack modes behind trees, etc., um, and uh, I think that the people who questioned Netanyahu, uh, Bennett's role in asking would Netanyahu have done it, I think absolutely would have, and anybody could have contributed to, to ending this carnage, uh, as I heard firsthand from the people arriving, um, it was certainly a, a valid role. I know this goes back to, to some of last week's discussion, but 
it, it must be it must be very difficult to evaluate when you're the prime minister of Israel uh, if it's better to get involved or to stay out. Um, and you mentioned last week that there's you know close to a million Jews in Russia, three hundred thousand Jews in the Ukraine. Although we don't know what that number is right now, I guess over the last couple of weeks. Uh, yeah, you really have uh, you know a couple of very serious uh, platforms of interest uh, between those two countries when you're the prime minister of Israel. I-, I know that you're not advising the prime minister, but but is it a smart idea to take this active a role, or is it better to sit this one out? You know that you're right that you're posing the dilemma that the prime minister had to have faced and the decision that he had to make. But the sides wanted him. It was actually the Putin, I think, that uh, initiated it. And then he called Zelensky afterwards, after that. But, um, no, I think that that it, it reflects a certain status that Israel has achieved. The, you're right that we have many considerations that we have to look at when evaluating this. There are 800,000 Jews in Russia by estimates. It could be a million. It could be more maybe a little less, and, and the 300,000 figure is generally used in regard to the Ukraine, though, again, it's very hard to know because many are completely unaffiliated, uh, and one assumes that they are one per- about 1% of the population or less, that amongst the refugees, they may be 2 or 3 or 4% uh, of the, of the uh, refugees who've gotten out. So the population still, the bulk of the po- Jewish population remains in Ukraine, there's been a lot of chesed, a lot of remarkable activities um, that, that is going on, people doing heroic things, getting people out, uh, trying to create alternative situations to get them out of harm's way. Uh, Jews have been killed in some of their shellings and fighting, uh, including an Israeli who was trying to leave the country, was mistaken for a Chechen gunman. Uh, we, we know that there are uh, Chechens involved, and that scares a lot of the, the Jewish community because they, they tend to be very brutal. So the, um, you know, a prime minister has to look at all of these considerations. How do you assure that you can still help the Jews, that they don't block us, that the Jews in Russia, uh, by the way, uh, applications for Aliyah have, have increased sharply from there as well. Um, and the economic conditions obviously are very bad. Many people lost their jobs as the foreign companies pulled out. Um, so... It's not just in, in the Ukraine that we have to be concerned about people. We have a community there to worry about as well. Uh, but in the Ukraine itself, the food shortages are beginning to, to appear. It's getting harder to get supplies and harder to move things around. Very expensive for those who take buses out. You know, we speak to people who the agencies from the joint and the, the Jewish agency to the Chabad and the uh, chief rabbi in Ukraine and others. There's so many wonderful Hatzalah is there doing great work. Unfortunately, I think there are, are unscrupulous people who take advantage of such situations, and I hope that's not happening here to raise money that, that doesn't go on, that doesn't get spent on the ground, because you need to have infrastructure. There are no banks functioning in Nakhim, so you can't just transfer money uh, and uh, to people to, to use. So people should be discreet in their choices. You know, this is one of the topics that has been uh, brought to my attention for the last two weeks, and people were anxious to get your comments. I'm glad you addressed it. 
Um, it, it would seem with all the solicitations that are coming through, and if you have one average email account, you're being bombarded by solicitations regarding the Ukraine uh, and a lot of different funds, etc. And I'm not saying that that a that a startup or a GoFundMe campaign, uh, which seems to be a startup, you know, can't be effective and can't be honest. What I am saying is, I would guess you would also recommend the way I've been doing uh, that people should, you know, try to. Uh, if they want to support financially whatever efforts are going on, try to find uh, those organizations that in the past have you know exhibited responsibility in how they distributed uh, one that you have faith in that can actually get the items or the money uh, to the Ukraine. That must be a really difficult process, as you just described. Uh, more than that, I don't know what to say. You know, I, a lot of people don't know who to trust, and I get that. But usually. Usually, established organizations in our community that have proven themselves in the past in this area uh, are able to, you know, in some way deal with the uh, uh, monies coming in in a responsible fashion. And I guess that's really the only position one can take when when trying to answer the question of where do I give my support. Yesterday on the air, we had really and, and who has? I'm sorry, I just wanted to say that people have people on the ground. It's usually a good sign that they can do things. It's not exclusive. There are organizations, people try to like the good at OU, others that have set up funds, uh, Britta, JDC, we know are, are reliable. And if you don't know if it's reliable, then do some more homework and check. But I, I share the concern you're expressing. Um, yesterday, Rabbi Kanelsky was on. He has a direct connection for many, many years to the Ray Wilhelm and the orphanage in, um, in, uh, in the Ukraine. And we know we, he described the entire rescue effort and the 16 buses that took people out. Uh, I don't know what percentage are now in uh, Eastern Europe and what percentage are in Israel, but both are pretty uh, significant representations. And obviously, if one would support a fund like that, we know that they're going uh, to the right place and that the money is being utilized really well. By the way, speaking of refugees, and I know that uh, you know there's so much of this news being covered you know, all over the place, but there's certain things that we can address that will be addressed nowhere else, in my opinion. Um, in the context of history... Um, how, how do you feel when you see, or, or to what degree do you admire, I have to be careful how I ask this question, the people of Poland for what they're doing? I mean, if in fact a million people are heading to Poland and Romania, and I guess that figure a week later is, is much, much higher, um, you know, a, a country that, you know, in our history has never uh, been seen favorably as one that's ready to rescue people. They are. It looks like they're stepping forward and stepping up in order to do it. What What are your impressions when you see the reaction of Eastern European countries, especially Poland? You know, these are, are very uh, issues, very laden with emotional and historical uh, context. In Ukraine, obviously, as well, yep. uh, has uh, a long and, and checkered history, uh, and many people have raised it uh, with us, uh, but it's not the issue today. Right. Ukraine has a Jewish president, and as I said, I spoke to him this, this, during this past week. We, we, he's somebody who identified always as Jewish. He wasn't involved in the Jewish community or Jewish practice, but he was certainly identified and the fact is that amongst the East European countries, Jews are most accepted, quote, as citizens by their neighbors um, than they are in Poland or any of the other Romania, other countries. It was like 5% didn't accept them, uh, which is a remarkable statement. Um, and, and this is a poll that's not very old, but it preceded the war. And uh, I think we're, we're 
you know, we have to right now try to focus on our on our primary responsibility, which is to get people out and to see to it that they're taken care of. Uh, I think the other considerations are not relevant. And Poland has taken already more than a million, and supposedly it could be even two million people. It's quite remarkable, you know, and, and I, I just have to do this one side note, because I've even heard it from people in the community critical of Israel and saying, well, they are, they've only taken 5,000, and they and as I said to one of the rescue agencies, he, he looked up, he heard the person saying it to me, and he said, yes, but that's 5,000 more than the United States took. It's 4,700 more than the United Kingdom took. Germany has taken, you know, 30,000, but it's a big country, Israel has responsibilities to, to a population. We, we have first responsibility to get the Jews out, but they're not discriminating. They have taken non-Jews out. They've taken people even from Lebanon and, uh, and Syria uh, to help facilitate their uh, exit. And I know at the borders, the, the Jewish organizations have worked with people of all faiths, and that's what must be done in these circumstances. Um, so I think people should be very uh, careful these days in getting sidetracked and wasting energy and and and, and talking about uh, issues that can be debated philosophically at another time, but should focus right now on an obligation. There are many elderly Jews. You have many people. I met one who came off the plane, and she said, "This is the second time this has happened to me. Seventy eight years ago, and now." Oh my gosh! And, um, and I have to tell you, you you can't walk away from that indifferent. And when and let me just, uh, to the audience's benefit, this was Pastor Hagee of Christians United for Israel who paid for this trip. In one week, he raised $2 million to take Jews out, and he has a goal of $20 million. By the way, the federations have raised $20 million in the United States. A huge amounts of the, the generous, generosity of our community, of the entire Jewish community, is really remarkable. But when I saw the plane, and you stand there, and the people came down, first of all, it's, it's so powerful. And you saw little kids. This was two o'clock in the morning in the airport, and um, and what what I saw was no truck went to take luggage. A big plane, 150, 80 people or something. No luggage. They had no luggage. Nobody had suitcases. They carried what they had in bags, in paper bags, and things like that. And and some of them had children. Some of the children carried their own little bags of stuff, and uh, and also no adults, no adults, uh, males, male adults. It was mothers with children and some grandparents, but 23 men out of 160 people, because there was no, um, there was no. Um, um, uh, you know, they're not allowed to leave. When they're of a certain age, they have to stay in the Ukraine and fight, basically. sixteen to 18 to 60-year-old men cannot leave. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world. The web at com and the Segal Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. And, yes, those who caught me on the mistake with Daylight Savings Time, it is spring forward. I appreciate that. Yeah, falling forward would not be a good idea. Um, and Malcolm Holine is with us from Israel. He's executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. All right, so now to some of the nuts and bolts of what's going on uh, on the ground. Um, I mean, it's obvious that uh, Putin suspected 
uh, with his uh, army personnel and his firepower that this would be a much uh, much more uh, a much quicker process and one without much opposition. And obviously, the Ukrainians have demonstrated otherwise. What do you attribute it to? Is it a lack of will uh, or or direction? or focus of the Russian soldiers? I mean, I don't even know if they understand what the mission is here. Obviously, I haven't been to Russia to hear the propaganda and the speeches from the uh, president. Uh, but I don't know if the, uh, you know, the, the Ukrainians seem to know what, the, what their goal is. They've got their eye on the prize. Uh, is, the, uh, is, the, uh, um, is the incompetence that's being described of the uh, Russian army because of attitude more or because simply they are incompetent uh, or more incompetent than we originally thought? I don't know to, how to judge it. I'm not a military person. But you see, when people don't have the motivation, you know, people talk about how Israelis fight because they're fighting for their lives. Right. The Ukrainians are fighting for their lives. They have motivation. They And you see some of the interviews with Russians that um, are very disturbing. Uh, when you see that that they don't have a sense of mission and stuff. Um, So I think people, um, you know, we will have a chance to to see more, and we'll see what happens. They say that they send the youngest soldiers up front that, uh, and by the way, a general got killed in the the fighting. But um, it's... um, it's such a complex situation, and it's so difficult to assess anything right now. Um, you know, this overwhelming power. I, I heard from uh, people in the Ukraine, in the Ukrainian uh, army, and others who had witnessed Russian soldiers selling the gasoline from their car, their tanks and stuff, and then saying that they broke down uh, because they're not motivated into the fight, or they didn't know. They thought this was going to be a quick action, clearly, and it's not. They got, and somehow the resistance is much greater than what people. Uh, had expected, or what Putin, I guess, and the Russians had expected. You know, it would be like the Crimea, where they just cut through. The resistance on the part of the of the Iran of the uh, Ukrainians seems to be very uh, uh, seems to be very strong. Uh, there's immense devastation, and many of the areas are not covered by the media. They can't see it, so you can't see the the extent of the dem- the, the devastation that has been. I've heard from eyewitness uh, accounts. Boy. Uh, but it's not mostly hand-to-hand contact. There is street fighting. Uh, but I think that it's, it's much more limited. It's more the tank and artillery fire and rockets and things like that that is doing the bulk of the damage. And we've been focused on what we're seeing in this social media war, what we're seeing with the uh, immediacy of the photos and videos that are coming out. And you're telling us that it's much. It, it's even worse than all of that. If if the if the capital is is in fact taken, uh, and we don't know, you know, it, and we keep hearing about and and hearing comments about the resistance of the Ukrainians and their plans in terms of uh, trying to fend off the is the Soviet army in the capital. Uh, but if it is taken, is this going to change things a lot? We know Zelensky is a, an international popular figure right now. We know that he seems to be really in control. But you know, once once the capital is 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 sieged. Uh, and overtaken, uh, all that can change. What do you, what do you think, uh, will, will that be a real, uh, a, a real game changer if, in fact, the Soviets are successful there? The Russians, sorry. The in, Russians. In, cap, in, capturing, in, capturing the, in capturing Ukraine? The capital. In, in Kiev, yeah, which essentially means that the, if the government falls and much of the country before, right. maybe isolated areas wouldn't. But of course, it's 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 an immense message because nobody knows is this the last stop. 
uh, I think that the cost that's entailed, and if I can give you a little bit more of an analysis on this, that some of the things that I think you have to take into account is not simply, you know, if they take city, what's happening at home? These sanctions are so powerful, the economic sanctions uh, on, on Russia, which has a very small economy. People don't know, but its it, economy is the size of Italy, and without oil, it's the size of Holland. And he's done amazing things, Putin, with that size economy and building on it and um, and um, being able to, to exploit it. But now the ruble has lost almost half of its value, if not more, and it wasn't strong before. Uh, what's maintaining it is the oil being at the, such a high uh, level right now. So, and, and Russia is the largest exporter, not Saudi Arabia, not others. They're the largest exporter of oil in the world. And so they, they stand to gain much more from, um, from uh, you know, the, this uh, sharp increase, the inflation of the prices. But at the same time, when all these major companies are pulling out, and at some, there will be a, re, a reaction of the people in the country who will, who will for, at some point, um, respond to what's going on, will we'll, uh, uh, maybe rebel, maybe whatever. The oligarchs that are, are being stripped of um, a lot of their possessions uh, are obviously a force to reckon with as well within the country. So I wouldn't be sure that this isn't taking a heavy toll. Putin has clear control. Putin has the, you know, and controls all of the, the uh, sources of power, the army, et cetera. But that does not mean that there won't be uh, a price to pay and that he might be the one to pay the price ultimately. Uh, and and the uh, economic uh, implications of this are, are immense when, when they're cut off from, you know, consumer products to the international companies to the things that, that uh, impact everybody's daily life, lives. And second, um, I think that this, this is a bigger drain on his, his military, and we will find out the answer to your earlier question, which is really a very important one. Is the Army failing? Did the, did, and the designs and the, the program they have fail? Did they not anticipate the reaction? Or is this all preliminary to what will be a massive onslaught? This is the same strategies they used in Syria, in terms of destruction, targeting hospitals, targeting civilian places, creating civic havoc, or some people even liken it to their to, to their World War II tactics, that they still resort to some of the you know this massive influx of power of of a twenty mile twenty mile or thirty mile long convoy of uh, of uh, tanks and armored cars, and if you see the pictures, it's it's unbelievable, but. Most for a long time they were stalled. Today they started uh, moving, as I said before. Also, you, 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 the Ukrainian Air Force has been um, secreted till now. They haven't used it. It's not that it was destroyed. Some of it was. The, the massive cargo carrier, the largest in the world, was. But they have held it in reserve for the assault on Kiev. And it's part of the debate about getting the planes from Poland, either through Germany or directly or whatever, the big 29th to to um, to get them to Ukraine. Uh, people don't want to get involved. Countries don't want to get involved in, in what could become an extended conflict. And uh, Russia said, you know, we will hold those countries to account as well. NATO has also been exposed as being weak 
and maybe ineffective. And the fact is that most European countries don't have armies, don't have real capabilities. All of these are things that, that people knew, but it's, it's being highlighted. And we will have to find out, and we'll know much more in a couple of days and weeks, a week, about the answers to some of the questions about the performance of the Russian military. One thing I can be sure is that Putin is really frustrated by it and, and embarrassed by the, uh, the global perception of the, of the Russian army. Well, you warned us about Putin, and uh, it's amazing how one man can destroy millions of lives in such a short period of time. Um, you mentioned the United States. We don't even have a clear policy, and that's basically you know, based on the comments of the, or lack of comments of the vice president. We don't even have a policy when it, in regard to refugees right now. Um, w- would you consider the United States involved in this or not? I mean, the no-fly zone is being debated in Washington constantly, and the, uh, you know, the question of, about whether a U- U.S. entry in a way like that is going to start World War III, and the weapons, or more accurately, the uh, uh, the MiG deliveries you're, that you described earlier, you know, the, the system that should be used to get them to the Ukrainians is being bandied about and argued in the media and in Washington. Uh, is the U.S. involved now, in your opinion, or are they taking a backseat to all of this? So different analysts will give you different answers. One is that the perception of American disengagement or lack of resolve may have motivated people, uh, including Putin, who reads all these things uh, or tries to, um, and, and thought the United States would not react, as we didn't with Crimea, Crimea, and we didn't with Donbass, and we hardly did with the, the Georgia. And, you know, they were fighting in Georgia in, even in recent months. So, the, uh, you know, the um, one has to look at those factors about the United States. The no-fly zone is a very complicated thing, and, and I also think that the threats of World War III, I don't understand what the alignment will be. Do they think China is going to go in on the side of Russia against the West? I mean, China's interests are in its own development, its own thing. They proved it in the past. It's only their interests that matter, and I, I don't think that they are prepared to, to, to engage, and I don't know who else None of the Baltic states, none of the East European states would go in on the side of Russia. They, they are much more afraid of a war, uh, especially the Baltic states, that they will be next in, in any confrontation. Um, so that's one set of factors that, that you have to assess in, you know, when people talk about World War III. The danger, of course, is that Russia is a nuclear power and that he put them, his nuclear forces on high alert. But I think it's a huge leap for any country to be the first to, to, to use nuclear power. Very serious decision for anybody, any government to make. It's an act of desperation, and, uh, you know, it's only the weapon of last resort. And he has plenty of other power that he can, he can uh, deploy. Uh, but I, I don't see a world war emerging from this. I think that this will have lasting consequences. I think we're going to see... Um, and I hope lessons will be learned uh, from the negotiations in Vienna. I don't think lessons get learned very easily by the United States or the West. The deal that's being proposed is awful. There's no other word. It's just it's counterintuitive. Anybody who assess America's national interests, let alone Israel, let alone everyone else, would never go along with a deal like this that we're going to reward them, that we're negotiating with Venezuela, which is an Iranian proxy, from whom we, we blocked all the ships. And, 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 you know, took the oil and 
uh, and, and have them under strict restrictions and sanctions, and now we're negotiating with them that we're going to build up Venezuela and its capacity, its economic capacity. We're talking about giving $100 billion to Iran and to removing the sanctions from key people. When I heard this first from sources in Tehran a couple of weeks ago that this is the way the negotiations were going, I said I can't even repeat it, not on the show and nowhere because no one will believe it. It's not comprehensible that this would be the deal that we seem to be headed towards. And what's interesting is that nobody in Washington seems to care. It hasn't aroused the kind of reaction uh, that Senator Menendez made a, a great speech, and people should commend him, as I said earlier, a week or two ago when he made the speech. But overall, you don't see the action. You don't see the partisanship even. A group of 20 uh, members of Congress, 11 Democrats, wrote to the president expressing concern. I don't believe he's going to bring it to Congress. I think they're going to try and get this through without that. Um, and the, the, uh, the nature of the deal, and right now it's stymied. It's the negotiations, which were ready to be signed. By the way, the deal was ready to be signed, but they've been held up because Russia is insisting that the sanctions not apply to their dealings with Iran. So they're holding up the deal because they benefit either way. If, if Iran doesn't go into the deal, then 2 million barrels a day don't go back on the market, and Russia's oil, price, the price stays high. If they make the deal, then they can use Iran to bypass all the sanctions and also sell their oil through, through Iran. And so they, they position themselves to benefit. But listen to what the negotiator there said that Tehran could never have anticipated such a good deal. They could never have expected that they would get a, a deal like this. And, and I think that that is true, that they, they, they could not have anticipated that we would see this kind of, uh, of a deal. And it's only the initial steps towards what would be a larger deal. Remember that the sunset clauses start to come into effect in a short time. The sunset clauses meaning the limitations on missile development and many other things. It's a short time till they go into into uh, effect. So it's you know, and it's all a lot of it has to do with and uh, the perceptions of the U.S., the commitment of the West. The Europeans do not seem to play a big role. That it's primarily Russia that seems to have been directing this. They were pushing a hard line, making increased demands both in Tehran, pushing Tehran to a hard line, and in Vienna. Uh, and now they're, they're uh, manipulating the situation to try and gain from it. The, um, the, the, why is there not a stronger call in Washington than for energy independence, for utilizing the resources of the United States? I mean, I, I, I just don't understand it. I, I know that there's a, a large, uh, uh, a, a large, you know, um, uh, constituency of green. Uh, I get it, but I mean, we're talking about you know the future of this country and it being able to exist on its own and not rely on the parties that you just described. Why is that a greater call in Washington for energy independence? Well, there has been, and there's been a lot of talk about it, but but we have ways, you know, the pipelines, the other things, things that were closed down. American refining could be could be uh, secured. We we are energy independent if we want to be. And we were. And fracking and other things, I think, can be done environmentally safe ways. Um, the movement towards renewable energies and other things should be pursued. We showed that we can spend a lot of money on a lot of things when we want to. And uh, the passage of this bill this week, by the way, I don't know if we'll get to it, but the, the 
$1.7 billion, includes a billion dollars for the replenishment of the Iron Dome, which is not part of the regular aid packages in addition, as well as uh, money for uh, religious institutions for security, an enhanced amount from 180 to $250 million. Uh, but, but we're coming up with millions of dollars that will go to, to, um, to Ukraine and will in all forms of sorts of assistance to them. Uh, I think non-military, uh, but the the question you're posing is is so fundamental to America's interest. I think last time BB's speech sort of galvanized both pro and con opinions, but also the leadership uh, on this issue. Now we, we don't have a galvanizing event that and the, and the Republicans have come out and spoken against it. There are some Democrats who have spoken against it. If they understand the implications of what this deal and. Again, we have to see it to know that that for sure is what is intended. But Rob Malley, who's the negotiator for the United States, is one of the parties that helped draft it in the first place and believed that the JCPOA was a legitimate approach and, and document. And now they justify it by this uh, by getting us back on track. But this again is not the final deal for JCPOA. This is like a first stage, and. And they won't need another stage. If they get uh, $50 billion, let alone the $100 billion people are talking about, or even $10 billion, much of that will go to the terrorists, and much of it, the 40% of the economy is controlled by the Supreme Leader and the IRGC. Uh, I know this is getting us off Ukraine, but I don't. I, I, people have to understand what a complex time, and it's interrelated. What happens there sends a message. What our, our friends in the Gulf think, what Israel thinks, what Egypt thinks, what Jordan, all of them, and anybody's called upon, to, to anticipate for their own defense systems that Iran will have a nuclear capacity. They'll have a breakout time of a month or five weeks or, or two months, whatever. But in the meantime, they're developing their missiles capacity, they're developing the weaponization, and they have the capacity to enrich to 90%. We know that they have it, and, and they're not being asked to dismantle these institutions. They're putting them, they're frozen, freezing them. They're supposed to ship out the stuff to, to Russia, which will then benefit. So we're instituting all the sanctions, doing all this against Iran and the me- against Russia. In the meantime, we're negotiating with them in Vienna, and they will be, be beneficiaries because they'll be paid to take the, the spent fuel out of out of Iran. Everything is interrelated. Yeah. And, and people should not look for simple things and, and get caught up sometimes in some of the slogans that people say about, you know, how complex these issues are. And the Prime Minister of Israel, more than almost anybody, has to look at all of these things and consider what, not just for this week, next week, but six months, a year from now, where Israel will be. Do you think that the next couple of days will bring a little bit more of an air of diplomacy and uh, the possibility of a real ceasefire, or are we going in the opposite direction? I think both. I think that, well, again, who knows, but uh, I think both. I think we're going to see increased efforts. The humanitarian uh, crisis is touching people, and I think there's a growing demand for war. There is no avenue right now. NATO clearly can't do it. The U.N. has proven totally impotent. And anybody who says, you know, Israel should rely on and rely on, just look at this. Ukraine is much bigger than Israel. The sides here are clear. It's in the heart of Europe. And, and uh, you know, you got to rely on yourself. And that's the bottom line of what Israel has always said. And if it isn't clear to people now, I don't know what will make it clear. I do not see yet the, the diplomatic avenue, the talks between Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, and the foreign minister of Ukraine. Very important. Maybe 
maybe uh, we can create a ladder that they will do. But the demands Russia is making that they never apply to NATO, maybe. But the other demands that they recognize the uh, Russian seizure of Crimea and as territory and the others become independent is not something that uh, Ukrainian government could could um, do and and survive. You know, when before the fighting, uh, Zelensky was like at 15 percent popularity. Now. He's a superhero all over the world, yep. and and, it's, and especially at home. And he has done a remarkable job. And he's a very serious guy. I, I, I met him before. I didn't. I honestly couldn't did not assess him. I liked him, and we had very nice discussions. But in the discussions this weekend, you see how resolute he is, and how determined he is. That they didn't flee, you know, from Kiev, but he stayed, and he's fighting with the people and. You know, the defense minister is also of Jewish origin. The, the, the mayor of Kiev, of Kiev is uh, of Jewish descent. The, the prime minister, or defense minister, rather, is. Uh, um, but again, in this case, they're, they're acting as Ukrainians and as uh, for the interest of their country. I don't see the, the, a clear diplomatic path. I also don't see how, uh, if the military escalation, how you avoid... A lot of civilian deaths and a lot of a lot of crisis that um, hopefully can be avoided. We certainly pray, and we have to continue to pray for our brothers and sisters that are going through all this. I don't know how they are able to survive. I know that in a lot of places that are uh, uh, that are you know hunkering down, so to speak, in the Ukraine, including synagogues and the Jewish institutions, they have tried very hard to. Load the load the area or the facility up with water and with food and supplies, but it must be just an impossible situation for so many people, especially the elderly, as you described earlier. So we continue to pray for everybody and those who are anxious to support. Uh, be as responsible as you can in terms of uh, where the money goes and uh, and uh, as we recommended earlier, the usually the more established organizations that have done this type of thing in the past are a good bet that they're able to uh, get the aid. Uh, to where it's needed and the money to where it's needed. Have you heard anything about BB? By the way, he had four shots and tested positive this week for coronavirus. Yes, he's been he's been isolated for a few days. And uh, Pastor Hagee, I know, had a discussion because he called him and said that he hopes that uh, he'll still be able to see him before uh, Pastor Hagee leaves. Uh, and and I just have to say a word of tribute after spending time with him here and seeing the commitment that they have and, and all the good things that they're doing through Christians United, which has 11.5 million members in the United States. They add 100,000 members a month. It's and, and they do no missionizing. They make people sign that they don't missionize Jews, and and he certainly does not. Uh, but we have a lot of friends, so we should not be disheartened. Uh, I think, um, you know, there are many members of Congress who were here in Israel over the last couple of weeks very positive, came back even more committed, uh, and, and you see it in the countries in the region. I've had the opportunity to talk to some, and um, I think the Abraham Accords, other things are still are supported and and uh, looked to as a, as a key to the future. So I don't want people to go into Shabbos feeling uh, pessimistic. We have to feel committed. We have to learn the lessons of what, what is happening and make sure that we save lives, that, of all lives, um, on both all sides and any side in this circumstance, but there are certain stands that you can't, you don't compromise. You've got to stand and, and think of the long-term implications. Well said and much appreciated. Have a wonderful Shabbos in Jerusalem. We'll speak to Hashem next week.
God willing, be well and stay safe. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time with a weekly update here at JM in the AM.